Welcome back, La Liga fans. This is the Total Football Analysis La Liga podcast. My name is Alex Comsia, and we are back to round out this La Liga season. I'm happy to be joined by El Profesor, Chris Mumford. How you doing, Chris? Fabuloso. Glad to be with the guys. Professional defender, DJ Taylor. How's it going, DJ? What's up, guys? Thanks for having me. Our expert analyst, Scott Martin. How's it going, Scott? Fantastic. And our other expert analyst, Sam Leverage. How's it going, Sam? Okay, thanks, Harry. All right, guys. La Liga is officially over. We had some dramatic endings. We also had some pretty boring and uneventful matchups to close out the season. But let's go ahead and recap some of the action from this past week. Real Madrid are campeones, clinching their first La Liga title since the 16-17 season. So congratulations are due, Scott. Thank you. Atletico Madrid finishes in third place, tied on points with Sevilla, but have a better goal differential. Sam, your boys got the job done, just barely. Yeah, I wasn't too optimistic a few weeks ago, but all good in the end. Villarreal holds on to fifth, and Real Sociedad claims sixth sixth place. Look, Granada made a strong push at the end and gets into that seventh position spot. Leganes had a thriller against Real Madrid, but ultimately are relegated with Mallorca and Espanyol. Scott, Madrid took care of business, winning 2-1 against Villarreal, and then had a tough match, like I said, against Leganes. Tying 2-2, how did those matches play out? Yeah, so the, the matchup against Villarreal, that was definitely the big one, uh, the championship clincher. And uh, it, was, it was interesting to see Real Madrid um, come out and earn their early goals off of uh, building out of the back mistakes from Villarreal. So we knew that the, the counter press from, uh, and high pressure from Real Madrid could cause issues for Villarreal. And in fact, that's what produced the, the goal, uh, the first goal. So uh, credit to Real Madrid for the high press. Uh, but as the game progressed, one of the things that we really saw was when Real Madrid was in the midst of an open possession, they really used the width of the field to stretch this Villarreal defense uh, to try and create little pockets of space to penetrate centrally. So with... Uh, Real Madrid's wingers, uh, especially I think with Mendy and Carvajal, really making an effort to get forward and contribute to the attack. Uh, we did see those wings open up, and that did force Villarreal to to shift across the field. Um, but to their credit, I actually thought Villarreal did a really good job defensively. Uh, contrary to the past few matches, they they did manage to maintain a fairly compact shape throughout the match. They never really dropped off defensively. So they, they did make Real Madrid work. Um, and on the flip side, when Villarreal did make their push, especially at the end of the match, um, they did find a couple of opportunities, a, a brilliant finish from Vincente Ibora, uh, put them just a goal back in the closing minutes. But ultimately, it's Real Madrid closing it out, winning the title, and credit to Zinedine Zidane uh, for the work he's put in, um, the guys come in, taking a fairly, um, a fairly large returning uh, starting 11 
and just reshape their tweak their tactics a little bit and reshape their attitude and uh, produced a winner. So um, yeah, credit to to Zidane and you know in this match the clincher. Uh, credit to Real Madrid from using those uh, those little pockets of space they had in the middle to find their their players on the wings and to to generate a few quality scoring opportunities. So let's talk about this Ramos PK or Benzema run into the box. Scott Ramos comes up, makes one of these runs right into their 18, gets the foul, and then instead of taking the PK, he dishes it off to Benzema. But Benzema runs into the box a little too early. Why is this a retake and not a free kick for Villarreal? So if only Real Madrid had encroached, if it was just Benzema who had run into the box, it would have been a free kick in Villarreal's favor. But I think what ultimately happened is that when Benzema made his run into the box and you know landed at the penalty spot at about the same time Ramos did, five or six players followed. Uh, players from each side. So when that happens, uh, if there is the defending team encroaching on a penalty kick, it is retaken. So um, yeah, Benzema stepped up, got his second goal of the match, and uh, <laughs> yeah, we got a little bit of con- uh, controversy, you know, which you know is expected for Real Madrid. But uh, yeah, turns out to be the winner. For sure. So let's transition here to the Leganes game. A absolute thriller um, here. So DJ against Leganes, the first goal. How is Ramos this wide open for a header on a wide free kick? Or is it just poor marking? I think it's just poor marking at the end of the day. I think it was when I was it was crazy just to find Ramos free by himself after all and defender let enough space get between him and Ramos and if you give Ramos any kind of space you already know that's a goal for sure Chris what about the goalkeeper here you know he comes out it seems like he's going to come out and then he realizes oh it's it's Ramos better stay in the goal but it's a little too late I agree with you he clearly took a couple uh steps forward and went uh-oh I'm going to change my mind um you know, I, I think generally, you know, an alternative interpretation could have been that he's like, wow, this guy is completely wide open. I'm just going to take two steps forward and try to be big and in the way and really lucky uh, because uh, two yards gives you 0.06 tenths of a seconds in terms of reaction time. And I'd rather get lucky and get hit by the ball two, two yards closer than have that 0.06 seconds of reaction time. Sam, as a Leganes supporter, were you surprised by their push against the champions late on? Yes and no. I mean, looking at the Leganes team that started the game, they'd only score of the whole 11 players on the pitch. There was one goal in the league all season. So, I mean, really dreadful. There's no way you would even imagine they score two against Real Madrid, let alone possibly trying to get three. But then they are a team who've been giving it all in the the last few weeks, they've been playing really, really well as we come to the end of the season. They have started scoring goals, and it was clear that if anybody was not going to give up until the very final whistle, then it was going to be Leganes. And they were really throwing everything at it. So I wasn't surprised to see them testing Real Madrid more than some people had expected. But I think even Leganes fans were still dreaming a little bit about a third goal being possible. And if the VAR referees had been a little bit more wide awake, maybe, then 
they might have got that. VAR seems to be a hot topic around Real Madrid, Scott. But let's move on here. Um, Sam, Atletico Madrid defeated a tough Hitafe squad 2-0 and then tied Real Sociedad 1-1. What are your biggest takeaways starting with the Hitafe match? Yeah, so I mean, Hitafe were very reluctant to drop points in this one. And quite early on, it was quite clear they were going to sit back and defend quite deep. And just try and let Atletico play and hope they could try and get a goal on the counter-attack. I mean, Hatafe haven't been in great form. So they were clearly just trying to kind of stabilise things and hope to narrow a goal rather than depending on on themselves. But Atletico did react quite in quite an interesting way. And we've seen before that their 4-4-2 formation usually has one wide midfielder who gets a bit further forward. And you can see here that with Marco Llorente, he's been acting as the second striker. And it almost became a front three with Diego Costa, Marco Llorente. And Angel Correa, and so Atletico really kind of counteracted the way that Hitafe would sit deep to try and open a bit up a bit more space. I thought Llorente's goal was absolutely spectacular—a quick spin and the pull of the trigger. You know that's so difficult to defend against. So DJ, you know, as a defender, how difficult is it when a player can shoot right or left-footed without even beating you one v one? They just shift to the side, and it's a quick shot. Yeah, I think it's super tough as a defender, obviously, because as a defender, you're already on the back foot because you don't know what the attacker is going to do. But to have an attacker who can go either way, uh, how do you decide which way to show them? Uh, that's that's a difficult decision a defender has to make every time they go against somebody. But like you said, it was a great strike. I would only recommend, you know, once they're like that, just try and block. That's all you can do at the end of the day. I think the defender was just a little slow. But it's obviously a great strike. Not much you could really do about it. For sure. And then what a goal for, for Koke against Sociedad. You know, Morata with the little flick up there to tee it off, almost like a like an alley-oop. Chris, I thought Oblak had a spectacular game against Sociedad. What were, what were your thoughts as a keeper? Vintage Oblak, right? Takes care of business. Um, I, I really think he is the absolute soul of that team. Uh, everything kind of builds from him and um he's worth every penny that he's paid for sure so let's transition over to fc barcelona um they lost to osasuna 2-1 it was a poor performance um messi came out to the press afterwards and as we all know he let the public know about his displeasure not only for that performance but for the whole season, for the whole season as well, um, Osasuna put on a tremendous performance, and they won, you know, with a man down, Gallego with a with a red card later on in the match. The first goal from from Arnaiz is just a really beautiful finish and a great cross. You know, he gets it on the half volley. I don't think there's much Ter Stegen um, could do there. Messi gets his angles right, though, Chris, in that unbelievable free kick. So, Chris, I wanted to ask you about what your thoughts were about the play- having a player on the defensive end right behind the wall laying down with his back towards the wall and having the wall jump when you have a player like Messi shooting a free kick. And it's not only been you know against Messi. It's been pretty common lately to see a player right under the wall so the ball doesn't sneak under. Yeah, I'll give you what kind of the, the uh, statistical perspective. Uh, I don't know if we have enough data points to make a conclusion on it. Uh, I will say that I 
my first impression is I don't like taking basically a defender, a potential defender out of the play by them laying down because the second ball threat to me is, is greater and more times than not, you know, if you generally speaking, if, if the ball is 22, 23 yards out and beyond, you, you kind of think they're going to be going for that near post and try to go over the wall. And as a keeper, you just have to trust your gut and, and cover it. Um, Chesney had an unbelievable save for Juve uh, against Lazio, which could have, you know, at that point, Juve's wrapped up the title. And I, I just feel that those second play threats are not worth giving up the defender. And I haven't seen enough plays where that that's actually worked. And maybe it's the threat of trying to hit low uh, works. But I also think that jumping up, this is probably debatable, but I, I, at the end of the day, as a keeper, I'd rather have a clear sight line. And when people jump up, I don't have the sight line. <laughs> that ball could be behind them, in front of it. I, I don't know. It's just, it's another thing for me to worry about as a keeper. And and I got to tell you, the, the, the goalkeeper should have been kissing those posts and hugging because uh, they saved him a couple of times that game on some messy hard kicks. He sure did, but then he got his his protractor the the right way, got the right angles on that one. Uh, yeah. Roberto Torres. Put the, sorry, Sam, go ahead. Yeah, just commenting on that kind of tactic of the player laying down behind the wall because the first team to do it recently, at least in in La Liga, was Sevilla, and just after the restart, and they defended really well. He had two or three free kicks in good areas, and none of them went in. And then the very next week you saw that Messi had already found the solution and obviously having so many players in the wall, so many players with the guy laying down behind the wall, it meant that he could kind of chip the ball over the top almost like a cross when they were expecting the shot and then Luis Suarez just headed it in. So I think that's the thing that teams have to watch out for, that they can't overcommit to the wall. Having one player down behind, as Chris says, I mean, you don't want to be taking anyone out of the equation. So it does leave teams vulnerable, even if it isn't the usual Messi shooting, it might be a Messi assist rather than a Messi goal. That's a really great point. So Roberto Torres puts the dagger in right at the end on the counterattack. DJ, what do you think happened in the locker room right after that game? Do you think it was dead silent or you think there was some conflict in the Barca locker room, I should say? Uh, it's hard to tell, but honestly, I think obviously when they first get in, it's pretty quiet. But I think once Messi walks in there, it gets pretty loud. You know, I think Messi behind his doors is a good leader and I Pretty sure, obviously, if he went to talk to the press, he obviously addressed his team as well in the locker room, uh, even probably with Kike Setien in there. Um, obviously, the other leaders like PK and Jordi Alba, they obviously probably had a conversation as well. Um, but the thing is, at the end of the day, it was just all good talk after that because they came out with this 5-0 win, and now they can only look forward to the next season. Like you said, they responded, Deportivo Alaves, 5-0. I mean, guys, honestly, this looked like a training match. No disrespect, but... Um, you know, Puch made a really good case, I thought, for him to eventually even start in this lineup. I thought he was a bright spot for Barcelona. Obviously, Messi um, kicking it off with the assist to Fati. Fati which was much better in this game as compared to the Osasuna game. Um, Messi's second goal, his first touch is so amazing. Just takes it right past the defender with his momentum and then fakes the keeper out, gets him to dive. And then the keeper knows there, Chris, that it's it's just all just game over from there. He's going to slot at home. So, DJ, I wanted to ask you also about 
these late curling balls that Messi has to Jordi Alba, why do we always see Messi curling it towards the left back? And usually it's Jordi Alba on these late balls. And why does he not do it necessarily on the right-hand side as much? Is it the angle? Is it the player he's playing to? What do you think? I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. Um, a lot of it has to do with the personnel. You just have that connection that, especially with him, he's developed with Jordi Alba over the years. And, you know, every time he looks up in that in that spot, that Jordi Alba's already going to be on the run without even – and without even looking, he could almost play it in behind. And so I think they've developed that connection. You also kind of saw that connection with, with Danny Alves. When Danny Alves was there, they did a lot of one-twos, one-touch, one-twos. And it's kind of just the connection they developed from playing with each other. But obviously, I think cutting in with your left foot, playing that curling ball is way easier than trying to play it the other way, obviously. I think the same thing goes if he was right-footed, he would cut in and play the right back more. Right. So it's obviously the angle and the connection. Maybe we'll start seeing some outside the left foot to the right back balls. Who knows? But, um, yeah, finally, uh, Sam Sevilla tied Real Sociedad 0-0, uh, which cost – may have cost them third place. Actually, it did cost them third place. But then Sevilla beats Valencia 1-0. What were your thoughts on the matchups? Yes, they were both quite dead rubber games in a way. I mean, Sevilla went to Real Sociedad and they were just trying to to get a good result. But it was quite obvious that they weren't as motivated as they had been in recent weeks. But what was really interesting was here, I mean, you can see Oliver Torres. And we've spoken a bit before about the role of Eva Benega and he's kind of the playmaker in that midfield for Sevilla. And we saw that Oliver Torres started to pick up his role. I mean, he missed the game against Valencia. He was suspended, which was his last appearance. It would have been his last appearance for the club. But, I mean, we can see that Oliver Torres kind of picks up that playmaker role and there's uh, the two fullbacks running wide. So he's just looking to kind of create some space there. And Real Sociedad, defending in numbers, couldn't afford to, to slip up with their own Europa League hopes kind of on the ropes. And so... That was how Ulan Lopetegui looked to try and solve that problem with Oliver Torres as kind of a playmaker in midfield. Do you think it was fair to say that against Sociedad, Sevilla was lucky not to lose? Yeah, perhaps. I think it was very much one of those kind of games where one team has already <laughs> sealed their fate for the season and Real Sociedad still had it all to play for. So Sevilla did just about enough to, to get away with the draw, but Real Sociedad certainly could have felt a little bit hard done by that they they couldn't find the way through. Right. And then against Valencia, Reguillon, DJ, makes a really good run into the box. He dribbles past a couple of guys. But is the defense just soft here? Should this goal even happen? Yeah, for me, the defending wasn't very good. Obviously, he had Was tracking back, and he kind of just fell over and claimed that he got fouled. For me, that was kind of soft. Uh, but I think you kind of see that in the Spanish culture. You know, they try to win the referee like that. And then obviously his cover after that, I don't think like Yilong did anything crazy. He just took a couple of touches, waited, and finished. Uh, so, I mean, they give him credit. It was a good goal, but the defending wasn't very good. For sure. Scott, Granada makes a big push at the end of the season, beating Mallorca 2-1 and then smashing Athletic Club 4-0. What were your thoughts on those matches? Um, so, for the season, I'm uh, just... Congratulations to Granada. Uh, I don't think anybody expected them to to make that run into a Europa League spot. Uh, it's the f- club's first time playing in, a, in the Europa League, so um, we had a really shocking run of form to, to close out the season. Um, that match they played against Real Madrid, uh, you can see that they were arguably the better team, 
and that form carried into these last couple of match matches, especially just smashing, uh, you know, fairly solid uh, athletic Bilbao team. So, um, yeah, Granada, congratulations in the Europa League. Um, brilliant run of form to end the season. Right. I thought the Bilbao defense also just looked very soft in this matchup. Like, it, they just didn't, their body language was very poor. You know, they didn't clear balls well. Their 1v1 defending intensity was was pretty average. Why do you think that was? I think going into this matchup, they had a fairly good idea that they were, um, they you know, they didn't have anything to play for. Granada, on the other hand, did. So um, definitely more motivation for Granada. Um, yeah, I mean, Bilbao definitely could have shown a little bit better. Um, they were pretty open in the uh, defense. And really the support for the keeper, um, it was just not very, I think there were a couple of block shots that ended up in the back of the net on the second opportunity. So um, just really poor support from the defensive side. Uh, and, you know, you could just see as the second goal was scored, especially right. uh, just the interest to close out the game was just not there. Um, so, but yeah, good hand didn't let up and you know, kudos to them. For sure. So let's wrap up our strength of schedule discussion here. Chris, take us away. All right. So if we take a look at the schedule, really having a look at the post-COVID season. And in the beginning, uh, I guess five weeks ago, we thought about this is basically going to be a brand new season. And Real Madrid did amazingly well. They won 10 out of 11 with one tie. Um, Barca stumbled, three ties and a loss. Um, Atletico Madrid kind of kept it all together. They righted the ship uh, basically with, with four ties. And Sevilla did as almost as well uh, with one more tie. Um, the interesting piece on the Europa elements is that uh, – wow, it really was more about which team was going to lose fewer games rather than which team was going to win more. So um, Hatafe, which was in a fantastic position, Valencia was in pretty good position. Even Real Sociedad, who, uh, you know, they, they were in pretty good position, but they still lost five matches, right? So Villarreal was, was kind of the best at not losing as many games. Uh, and they ended up uh, in fifth place uh, with Real Sociedad and Granada. Uh, what I am struck by is, guess what? Uh, the team with the first, second, third, and fourth largest payroll ended up finishing in first, second, third, and fourth. Uh, so, um, so that's to be expected. Um, what I will say is that um, the the real plunky surprise visitors we thought was going to be Hatafe, but they kind of slipped in the end. But little plucky Granada at, with a, only a 36 million euro payroll ended up uh, grabbing that Europa spot, uh, which has got to be such a bright, um, bright uh, day. While as yet Valencia, on the other hand, who has 170 million uh, euro payroll, uh, ended up finishing well out of the, uh, the Europa. So um, uh, I guess what's uh, some interesting takeaways are, are that um, it's going to be 
it's going to be interesting to see what ha- what what happens next season. There are going to be some things to build on, uh, but I wanted to kind of get y'all's takes on what are some of the the little interesting stories that y'all have saw seen from the the season here and how things ended up in the post COVID uh, eleven matches. Yeah, I think for Granada it's a really interesting one, as you say, Chris. Obviously, the wage budget is a a huge difference compared to the other clubs, and I think that. The break came really well for them. I mean, we can see that the results haven't been perfect all the way through, but they did pick up some big wins. I mean, beating Atafé and Athletic Club were two teams who were in the mix for Europe as well. But I think as well, it's quite interesting. They've got quite a small squad. They only came up from Segunda last year. And I think that break was came at the perfect time because they were just starting to falter a little bit. They had a very strong start. And the tiredness was just kicking into their legs kind of in March. So I think this break was perfect for them to kind of recoup, have a rest and then come back really fresh in June to kind of kickstart everything again and make their way just into that seventh spot. I think, as, as Sam mentioned, the Granada story is just incredible. I mean, you could see what it means to them um, after the Bilbao match and how they were celebrating. Also, Valencia will be extremely disappointed with how they've ended the, you know, the last... <laughs> five, six, seven matches of the season after quarantine, after, you know, after the break. I do also think that Barcelona and Atletico Madrid will also be pretty disappointed. You know, they ended up, Barca obviously more so than Atletico Madrid will be disappointed that Madrid won the title. But I just think they were both not up to their super high standards. And that's why I expect next year, you know, the points will just be even that much higher and it'll be that much more competitive across the front three. I'm not counting out Sevilla, but I, I do think that Sevilla will also come in fourth next year because I just think the top three clubs will be pushing um, at, at new heights. Yeah, I, I can't get over the payroll per point figures where you have Barca leading it at 8.3 million euros per point and Real Madrid at 7.5, Atletico Madrid at 5 million and Sevilla at 2.6 and Little Granada has uh, 600,000 euros per point. And um, I almost wish they would give an award uh, for, for kind of best punching, punching best at your own weight um, sort of thing. Cause uh, I think there's a, there's a great story there. And I guess Granada was the, or Sheffield United attempted to be what the Granada was of, of this season is, is those folks that are new to the, to the league and, and are on, are either able to punch a Europa ticket or be very, very competitive with that. Well, we don't have any La Liga matches to preview, guys. This feels weird. But we do have Champions League and Europa League preparation. You know, we still have a few more weeks until that happens. So let's have a discussion here about that Champions League and Europa League preparation, Scott. Real Madrid takes on Man City in a Clash of the Titans on August 7th. Still a few weeks away, but what should we look forward to in the next few weeks for Madrid to prepare well for this match? Uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of formation, what kind of approach they expect from Pep Guardiola. Uh, you remember in the, the first leg, mix it up, went with a 4-4-2 in defense. He had Gabriel Jesus drop into the left wing to negate uh, Danny Carvajal moving uh, up the pitch. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they prepare for that or if they do anticipate some other kind of tweak. They do obviously have a little bit of time to prepare. Uh, City's still in play. 
So you know, they they have a you know, I guess a little bit of an advantage in that they can get their rest and fully prepare for this next matchup. But uh, this this is going to be a really tough one uh, for them to come away with the victory. DJ, uh, sorry, Scott, go ahead. Yeah, especially since they do have to travel to Manchester. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily see them coming away with the result in this one, unfortunately. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, Zidane's, uh, he finds a way to win. He finds a way to feel the right side, but this is a really difficult matchup. DJ, when you've been playing so many matches back-to-back, -back, you know, within three, four days, and now you have this much time until your next match, how does that change your approach as a player mentally? I think it's tough because you get caught between, you know, taking advantage of this rest that you can take, but also not losing momentum. For example, Real Madrid, they have great momentum right now. You know, they haven't lost. They, they just won La Liga. You know, I think Zidane maybe will rest for a couple of days, but will honestly just push his players even more because that's what they'll have to do to, to win champions. Um, and obviously they'll get the rest as soon as Champions League is done. For sure. And next up, we got... FC Barcelona taking on Napoli. Messi has come out and said if they don't change things, they will lose to Napoli. I think that's very true. Napoli is a fantastic squad, and I think um, they do, however, play well into um, Barcelona's game because they like to play so centrally, especially Insigne coming in. Um, their narrow play is favorable to a Barcelona lineup that likes to collapse in that midfield, and we've talked about that before. So I'm really interested to see whether Napoli plays a back three or a back four. If it's a back three, more likely it'll end up being more of a five. But I'm interested to see who those wing backs are, the personnel. Will they be more defensive players or more attacking where they really go at Barcelona? And if they are more attacking the responsibility will definitely be on Barcelona's fullbacks to pin those wide players back so that Barcelona can maintain possession, that Napoli do not have a good outlet out wide. They can only play to an outlet up top, which again plays into Barcelona's um, collapsing press uh, centrally. So again, Barcelona has a lot to prepare for. Um, this will be a very difficult match, but the good news is that they should have almost everyone healthy. De Jong should be fully back. Um, I do expect Ansu Fati to start that game out wide with Suarez and Messi uh, up top with Griezmann, of course, still still being out. I don't think he will recover. But uh, yeah, a lot to look forward to there. Sam, Atletico Madrid plays a tough Red Bull Leipzig team on August 13th. What are your expectations? It's hard to really have any expectations because, I mean, Atletico are always a better team when they're the underdog. So especially in Europe in the last few years, we've seen them come up against big favourites. I mean, Pep Guardiola's Pep Guardiola Bayern Munich, even in the last round, when they played Liverpool, Liverpool were the big favourites. And that's when Atletico really come out of their shell and play their own kind of game and it works for them. So against Leipzig, you'd probably say that Atletico were narrow favourites in that one and it's a tag that they don't have too often at this stage of the competition. But then again, I think it will benefit them. Though obviously, Timo Werner's not going to be there in the lineup um, for Leipzig. And you would think that with Diego Simeone, this competition this year is almost set up for him. I mean, uh, just playing one game rather than two legs, that's perfect for Simeone. That's what he can do, grinding out a 0-0 or 
And then obviously Alex grew in the good side of the draw with Leipzig and Atalanta and PSG. So if there is a year where Atletico fans have really believed that maybe this is the year we win the Champions League, then I'd say probably this year. I'm going to go ahead and say they're going to make it all the way to the final. I'm going to put that on the record right now. Um, you'll, you'll love that. But uh, again, Sevilla takes on Roma uh, in Europa League on August 6th. Scott, Chris, any thoughts here on this matchup? Scott, you go first. So I think Sevilla should get through this matchup. Uh, their use of the wings should, I think, carry them out and get the result. Uh, Roma's had pretty good form of late. Not spectacular, but um, I do think overall Sevilla is the more talented squad. So I do look for them to take the initiative in the match. Um, you know, have a little bit more of the ball and really try to dictate, especially through the wings. So it'll be a really entertaining matchup. I think one of the, the better ones in the round. Um, but Sevilla should come through with the results. That's a tough matchup uh, on both sides, in my opinion. Uh, you know, Roma has, you know, they've, they've won their last uh, three matches. Uh, you know, they had a good, a, the good fight against Inter. Um, and they do finish up with Juve before they head off to, your, to your Europa. So they're going to have their hands pretty full. I am going to say you flip a coin on this one. This is that's a tough one to uh, to call. And Sam, we can't forget about Hitafe versus Inter. What are your thoughts here? No, well, I think if there's one game that nobody will want to watch on TV, it'll be this one. <laughs> it'll be absolutely awful. <laughs> but then Hitafe, I mean, in the last few weeks, they've just been so poor, so disappointing. And then it's hard to know how they react coming off the back of the result against Levante, which obviously saw them drop out of the Europa League places where a league finish. So, I mean, their season really kind of depends on what they do in these last few weeks in the Europa League now. But they've just been so poor since the restart that I can't see any way other than Inter just walking all over them. I mean, Tafe are usually very hard to beat and that's what they've lost in the last few weeks. So... I think Antonio Conte will have his team very motivated, very up for it. And I think Wardlass and, and his players are a little bit shell-shocked almost at the moment that what's happened here. I mean, we were on the uh, verge of top four and now we're not even in Europa League. So I think psychologically that's going to be very difficult for Atafe. And then tactically, I think Inter just have too much quality. I think Atafe can be very well organised tactically, but there's just too much quality in the Inter team for Atafe to hold out. Well, we will definitely preview uh, those these matches coming up in Europa League and Champions League again as the matches uh, start to approach with the next couple of weeks. Um, but guys, let's turn over here. I wanted, before we close up, to have a, an open discussion about who our MVP was of the season. Scott, can you kick us off? Sergio Ramos, of course. <laughs> so I definitely got to make a case for Sergio Ramos. The side had 19 clean sheets, um, best XG among uh, Europe's elite uh, competitions, you know, top five leagues. He's the anchor of that side. And not only that, he also managed, what, 11 goals. So uh, I think you've got to make a strong case for Ramos. Um, the side did come out and win the championship after all. So um, I think the value that he brought to the squad is is unmatched. and. Look at this last game when when he came out and Casemiro came out. Um, Leganes made their comeback and 
nearly pulled off the uh, the three two win. Should have had the three two win. So, um, but yeah, Ramos has been a rock for them. So he's my vote. Sam, what do you think? No, I think when it comes to MVP in La Liga, I think we need to look back at the last 15 years or so. Think how lucky we've been that we had Lionel Messi, as good as he has been, that he can get 20 goals, 20 assists, and we're even talking about who the MVP is. I mean, nobody's done that in La Liga before. It's incredible. I mean, he's setting new assist records, and he's still the top scorer in the league. I don't think you can look past Lionel Messi. Yes, Barcelona haven't been at their best, but in a way that almost makes Messi more of an MVP for me because he has carried this team this season more than ever before. I mean, you think about Luis Suarez's bad form, his injuries. I mean, for a long time this season, Lionel Messi's been their only chance of scoring a goal and their only chance of creating a goal. So Sergio Ramos has been good. Karim Benzema has been good. I mean, Casemiro has been good, but that's a team unit. So if we're looking for an individual, one specific man who's made a difference, I think it has to be Lionel Messi. Even with five goals, half of the league, you're still giving it to Messi. 18 yeah, men. because without, without the 20 goals against the bottom half of the league, then Barcelona would be looking at Europa League next season. So Sam, this begs the question, can defenders win MVP then, right? How can you have a better season than this as uh, if you're Ramos, for example? Can you? Well, I'm not convinced that Ramos has been that good. I mean, Ramos is, Ramos is incredible. Ramos is an amazing player. He's world-class. And he's been at the top of the game, the very best for a long time. But then this season, I think there have been times where Rafael Varane has bailed him out. And as good as Ramos is, he does have possibly the second best central defender in the world alongside him. I mean, when you look at the best central defender in the world, we're looking at Van Dijk, we're looking at Ramos and Varane, pretty much the top three. Completely agree. DJ, what do you think? We do look at Ramos as an incredible player for a unit team. I think it's the Madrid system now. Sorry, DJ. (laughs) But like, look at when Pepe was on the team. So Ramos was always the the one pushing forward, pressing into the midfield. Pepe was his coverage. So Baran has stepped into that same role. So it's that that complementarity of the two um, that really allows Ramos to excel in his role. I think without that, um, that, that back line would be a mess. Yeah, I would say, I don't know, it's tough between Messi and Ramos because you're almost used to Messi doing this. And he's done it for so many years. You know what I mean? Like, that's why people would lean so, so quickly towards Ramos. Yes, Ramos has had a great year. And for him, that was his best. But this wasn't even Messi's best year. And he's still <laughs> scoring the league, whatever you want to call it. You know, so I think it's tough. Obviously, I do think a defender should win some type of award, whether it's the same award or if they make a separate one for defenders because defenders, I think, need to be more recognized when they have seasons like this or you look at their blocks or stuff they put in, I think it gets overshadowed. Um, I also think I'd like to hear what Chris thinks about for La Liga goalie MVP. If it wasn't after O'Block, who would choose <laughs> after O'Block? So I agree with Sam on... The MVP needs to be messy. I I don't think there's a debate there. Um, I'd like to tweak things a bit and and come up with biggest difference maker. And uh, I would argue that Oblak is the biggest difference maker uh, in that uh, Atletico would probably be in Europa. (laughs) You can make an argument, maybe not even be Europa without Oblak, right? 
the uh, DJ, to your point, um, Ter Stegen has had a better season. He's saved uh, six in terms of expected goals and actual goals. Uh, Ter Stegen has done better. He's, he's um, got a 92%, meaning uh, he's had a lot fewer goals scored on him than uh, what was expected. So it's one of those instances where Ter Stegen had a better performance this year, but I feel like Oblak is the biggest difference maker. And I don't know who else in the league where, because with Messi, Barca and Real, that's the, that's the horse race, right? That is the measure for success. For Atleti, the Real and Sevilla, it's okay, we got to punch our ticket into Champions League, right? Uh, and then everybody else, I just feel like, the Europa, I, I don't know the Granada players well enough to say, hey, that's the biggest difference maker. They should have be the difference maker in the league. But you you guys know my bias. I, I think Oblak is the biggest difference maker. Scott, is it crazy that they're not talking about Courtois? <laughs> uh, I mean, it, that's, that's another one where, you know, maybe you could argue he benefits from the, the solid defensive structure they have at Real Madrid. Um, so not only got Ramos and Veron, but then Casemiro in front of them. Um, but I will say his form this season is wildly improved from last year. Um, I saw something on Twitter today that in terms of expected save percentage, he was actually in that top five of the league, better than both Oblak and Ter Stegen. So um, definitely an improved performance, um, made some quality saves to keep this team in uh, very tight games. And, you know, this is a side for Real Madrid that they didn't have a lot of blowouts. You know, that was a lot of really close uh, one and two goal margins. So, um, yeah, I think when you look at the MVP of the league champs, you have to look at the defensive players. That was really at the heart of their success. Yeah, just to close out this argument, it's, it's really tough because – a player like Benzema, if he, I'm really wondering, if he takes all the PKs Ramos doesn't take and he scores them and he beats Messi for the Pichichi, is he the undisputed MVP or is it still Messi? I don't know. I think it could go to Benzema. You know, as a Barcelona fan, I love Messi. I think he is the undisputed MVP, although my heart as a defender says I want Ramos to win the MVP because he's also my favorite defender and favorite player, my role model as well. So it's really difficult. You got this trio that in my head, you know, all could could deserve it. Obviously, Chris says Oblak as well, which I completely agree with. But but yeah, guys, it's it's a tough one. I'm, I'm wondering about that Benzema question. I, I would make the argument that to, to Scott's point, Courtois is as big of an impact player as Ramos was this year. Um, let's put PKs aside and, and great. Come on. Let's face it, guys. 75% of the time you're supposed to be scoring. It's like, how much of a, uh, how much of a foot can you put on the scale? And, you know, Courtois had 18 clean sheets, right? Uh, basically saved an eight expect more. Uh, there should have been eight more goals scored on him. That's a big difference for Real Madrid in, in terms of first and second place. You know, we, we'd be talking about how Barca is, is the, the greatest team in La Liga and, and, and all set rather than the narrative that we have right now. So, Scott, your point's right. Um, I think Courtois deserves it. He's not my style of keeper, 
But uh, you want to talk about apples and orangutans this year versus last year for most improved. He probably wins that hands down. I think there's another point which I'd pick up on just kind of in that debate of Benzema and whether he comes into the equation there. I think the thing that you have to look at more than anything is that he had that patch, which was around December, January, February time where he went 16 league games and only scored one goal. I think that's what sets him apart from the likes of Messi and Ramos. And even if we go into all black Courtois, where they haven't had that run of kind of bad form, they've been pretty consistent all through the season. And Messi hasn't gone more than four games without scoring a goal. And even when he, I think when he had that four game run without scoring, he made six assists. So I think there is a difference. I think Benzema has been excellent, but then I think for pure consistency, it has to be Messi or Ramos in that conversation. And then, I think it does just kind of highlight that Real Madrid can allow a player like Benzema to have a bad run of form. And because they are such a strong team unit and undoubtedly the best team in La Liga, they can get away with that. So they don't need that star man, that MVP, as much as Barcelona rely on one man, Lionel Messi. Hey, Sam, quick question. When Benzema was in that drought, who scored the goals? Real Madrid. Sergio or was it... That's that's one. I don't, right? I don't think Sergio Ramos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he's a good defender, but I so I've already said that. For me, he's the second best in the league this year. We'll need to have another debate next week about outside of the top three MVPs, guys. Before it gets too hostile, I'm going to wrap things up. I'm going to separate you guys into your separate corners. Thank you guys so much. Let's wrap up today's episode. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Total Football Analysis La Liga podcast. A big thank you to Sam, Chris, DJ, and Scott for your awesome insights today. We would also like to thank Total Football Analysis Solutions. Go check out www.totalfootballanalysis.com. They are the world's largest open source soccer analyst community. See you next week and hasta luego. 